Lord, thank you that you have made us for something more than bread. We can't live by bread alone. As you instructed Israel in the desert, that they were to live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So help us to hunger for the heavenly food. Help us to uh, be fed. Uh, Teach us, nourish us today in the ways of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Help me communicate. Uh, Help me to speak clearly that your word is the authority in the room. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, this is a a great moment because we're going to continue on in the story, the story that we entered into last Sunday with the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to jump ahead a little bit in the in the narrative, we know that Jesus, according to Acts 1, spent 40 days uh, instructing his disciples, and then he ascended into heaven. So uh, today, we're going to take a look at the book of Acts and begin a series in the book of Acts. And it's a beautiful book. I really like the book of Acts, um, and I hope that God will richly bless um, his word among us as we consider it. Um, the book of Acts is a, the book that I was uh, listening to when I was 19 years old. Uh, I was invited to attend church, and I went just to be polite to the people who invited me. And I didn't intend to do anything more than just attend church that day. And I never really recovered Um, And the idea that Jesus was a good teacher, was a moral teacher, was certainly important to me. Uh, If you had asked me if I was a Christian, I probably would have said yes. After all, I'm an American. Um, I always associated, I don't know, somehow those two things and, I don't know, anthems we sing as, as Americans and the name of God. And so that was kind of strange at least as I look back on it. So at 19 years old, I was a theater student in a college in San Diego, and I wanted to make movies in my life. I don't know if I wanted to be an actor, but I wanted to make movies. Well, talk about some drama. Instead of Jesus being lost in history and a good moral teacher, and perhaps the best moral teacher, He was loose. He was alive. He was converting people on the road to Damascus. He was doing those things. Now, when you hear those things and you're not a believer and you begin to understand that Jesus is loose, that's really disconcerting. And we often talk about good news, right? The gospel is good news. Well, That moment in church for me, it was bad news. Because this Jesus that we all rightly think is so precious was also the one who knew the whole deal about my life. And it was as if he was looking down on me. And he was. Through the preaching of the word, my heart was exposed. And the sermon was on Acts chapter 9. Saul of Tarsus on his way to go get authorization to throw Christians in jail. 
and then God knocks him off his donkey, and Jesus begins to speak to him. Well, Jesus speaking from heaven was crazy, weird stuff. Really true. That happens? That happened? Jesus does that now? Well, I left that church service, and I cried out to Jesus. But my cry and my prayer was, save me because you got me. I'm just like that guy on that road to Damascus. And then I didn't even know if Jesus would save me. How about that? Is that strange? That was my thought. For four days, I didn't know Jesus could save me or would or wanted to. In fact, my perception was that what, what God does is that he saves important people, like Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. That was my first theological thought, and I was wrong. So, I just want to get you oriented that we are in a remarkable story. And it's the story of stories. And Acts chapter 1 is a remarkable moment in world history. Just as Christ who rose from the dead is a remarkable moment, so uh, 40 days after he rose from the dead, he ascends into heaven and begins his reign and his rule. That's another great moment in world history. And so this is an exciting moment for us. And I want you to imagine for a moment, when we talk about the idea of story, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're dropped into, imagine like a movie, and you're dropped into a, a, a movie, well, it's, it's real, I'm not, I want to pretend like it's a, a fake thing you're seeing, but imagine you're dropped in on a, on a battle from, say, the medieval ages, and you see army on this side up on the hill and you see another army on this side and their horses all ready to go and they have their special you know colors on them and the and the 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 blue and green team over here and the orange and yellow ones over here and you're in the middle of this field and you realize whoa something's going to happen right here and they're getting ready to do battle you just dropped in the middle of this movie now what side are you on who do you cheer for? Who's going to win? Well, when it comes to the Bible, and we think about the unfolding of history, we, answer this, we ask the same question. What side am I on? Who's going to win? Who do I cheer for? We are irresistibly drawn to story. Story. Even a 30-second commercial on television is a story. And it is usually offering us a form or source or means of redemption. Head and shoulder shampoo is presented as a means of redeeming you. A certain kind of makeup is presented to you as providing this transformational power. In 30 seconds, or a car, or a truck, and it's it's, it's pulling power. And you realize, how have I lived without this V8 engine that can pull four other trucks? I've got to be redeemed from my, my lack of vision for what I should have in life. Why, I've been just putzing around in this old rusting Toyota. I should have that car. Everything is presented in a story. We love stories. And the story usually has some sort of redemptive message to it. That's why we're drawn to stories, because we want to make sure, right? By the way, this 
Batman Superman thing. Anybody see that thing? I hear it's like a big failure. How, how can you have two heroes fight each other? That's like, that's like anti-story. You've got to have bad and good. You can't have good and good. That's why it's failing. That's, I'm, I haven't seen it, but I'm just re- reading reviews about it. You, it's just, you missed it. The basic storytelling plot, you missed it. Uh, but I would have loved to have been the person who wrote that script and got paid for it, and then that had to be done. But anyway, so... <laughs> Uh, whether it's successful or not, I don't really care. Um, so, now, here is the story. And Luke records it, the beginning of it. Acts chapter 1 is part 2 of Luke's two-volume set. Uh, the first volume is the Gospel of Luke, and the second volume is the book of Acts. Uh, the first book, O Theophilus, there's the individual, um, someone of great stature uh, in Likely great stature, or some someone of influence in 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 Rome. Uh, likely someone who was uh, a, a believer, who now wanted the details of the life of Jesus and the book and a record of the history of the church. Okay, so the book of Acts is a record of the New Testament church. And O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, verse 3, he presented himself alive. By the way, it's all really matter of fact. It's just like, doesn't embellish the idea that he presented himself alive. Just kind of, it's like a news reporter. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. A very important part of of the training of the disciples is Christ on the other side of the resurrection and informing them of details of the kingdom that they would likely have not understood until those, that moment. In verse 4, and while staying with them, and by the way, the thought here is that he often had meals with them, and some think that perhaps Jesus' primary time of instructing his disciples was during mealtime. When uh, with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, that's just the opening uh, thoughts from, from Luke to his friend Theophilus. And now we are realizing that the, the history is now uh, changing Jesus is now giving his final instructions to the disciples, and the Spirit is going to come. The Spirit is going to come, and they are to remain in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. Uh, and the temptation probably would have been for them to all go back to Galilee and hang out in the old town and, uh, and, and just sort of lie low for a little while. And Jesus instructs them to stay in Jerusalem, and the strategy really is this. The city, the great city of, of remarkable spiritual decay and hardness of heart that crucified Jesus, that city will be the place where a new beginning uh, happens, a fresh pouring out of God's spirit and the formation of a new Israel, the new Israel uh, a formation of Jews and Gentiles. And so the, the strategy is that God will be gracious and 
through the preaching of the disciples, he will speak the gospel to even those who crucified him. So uh, we are now in this remarkable story that continues on, continues on. And the promise of the Father is the empowerment of the Spirit. The empowerment of the Spirit. This is the story that you are in. It's a remarkable story. It is a powerful story, and it is the story of all stories. God, out of his great pleasure, was delighted to create and to make all that is visible, all that we see, come to reality. He made this unique creature as the capstone of his creation. He made man. And man was to serve him and to glorify him and to enjoy him forever as the supreme source of happiness. But man turned away and became wise unto himself. Man thought he could become the source of his own happiness. The world God had made includes physical things and spiritual things, spirits. Amazing world, an enchanted world, a world of remarkable uh, beings. But man was the only one made in the image of God, and man rebelled. Well, just when things seem so lost and beyond the point of recovery, it is revealed that God intends to redeem his world and to come himself. And he arrives in the agency of his son, and we discover that the son loves the father above all. And the, the son is the Adam, the second Adam, the faithful Adam, who responds to every word that the father says. And out of sheer delight, he does the father's will even to the point of death. And isn't that what you want in a hero? You want the hero to leave their comfortable world. We want the hero to leave what they're familiar with and come to an unfamiliar world and rescue people, deal with evil, right? That's a beautiful theme we see in stories. Of course, that's, that idea comes from Scripture. And in his death, listen to this, beloved, in his death, the age of sorrow and despair has begun. To dissipate. And he has provided the justice required to redeem his people. A new age has dawned in, dawned in, the, in the rising of Jesus from the dead. And for a time, the world is allowed to continue on, and the news of this king's love and mercy is allowed to be communicated through those he has redeemed. That is the story you are in. That's the story. Now, maybe you find yourself today in the story of perhaps American success uh, or just some sort of uh, story of self-discovery, which is really a predominant theme today, that really you, you exist to exercise your choices, and in your choices you are most free, and hopefully you will choose something that is personally meaningful to you. And so you're sort of the author of your own story, the creator of your own story, and the story is just inside of you. Well, how different man has actually been made. We've been made to glory in God's story and to follow God as he leads us. 
We do resist the true story. That's why we gather on Sunday after Sunday. That's why we gather in fellowship groups. That's why we gather one-on-one, because we have to be reoriented to the story. So it was true also of the disciples. The disciples needed a direct command to be witnesses in Jerusalem and to fulfill the mission of of God. Let's read verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And so they're speculating, thinking something special is going to happen in redemptive history, and this might be a very special moment. And it's interesting that Jesus really doesn't answer the question. It's not a time for speculation. It's not a time for uh, these kinds of, this is not a concern for them. Verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That is an outline for the book of Acts, by the way. It largely covers or follows that pattern of geographical expansion. So, the final instruction, you're going to be my witnesses, that's the plan. That's the plan. And then verse 9, again, it's sort of this matter-of-fact kind of a way of presenting it here. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And when they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So they're caught in this momentary preoccupation, and the angels give them a little reality check. Look, he's going to come back. And the, uh, the unspoken is, get on with your mission. <laughs> and, and so they wait and they wait in, in Jerusalem. And um, so this is a remarkable, remarkable beginning of the story of, of the book of, of Acts. And that Jesus, as we celebrated him rising from the dead, now we realize that the story does not end there, but that he ascends into, into heaven. Now, let me give you a couple of insights into the ascension and how does the ascension of Jesus relate to your daily and practical life. Um, the ascension is vital for a couple of different reasons. And to get to, get to that, I want to borrow from uh, J.I. Packer a couple of in- insights. And Packer is the one who first says that the, the ascension has uh, three critical insights for us. First of all, it's, his, it's Christ's personal ascendancy. Christ has ascended, and he has been given power. This is the rising of Jesus to be enthroned at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from there he begins to rule over his kingdom. This is the first idea that is communicated by Jesus about his new status in the world. Acts, excuse me, Matthew 28, uh, 18 and 19 talks about how he says, he says this, all authority has been given unto me on heaven, in heaven and on earth, all authority. Ephesians 1.20 says that, speaking of 
Christ being raised from the dead and seating, seating him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Verse 22, Ephesians 1. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 1 Corinthians 15, 27. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. When you read your New Testament, it has an exalted Christology. And this is the challenge for us. Just how exalted is Jesus in my thinking when, I, when it comes to this idea that he is the ascended king reigning over this creation and his church? What is that? Think about how informed am I? How, and lo, how large is my heart toward this truth? 1 Corinthians 15.25 says that he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. In the ascension of Jesus and in his enthronement, he has begun now to reign. He's begun his rule. And he's begun to rule over those who oppose him. Now, how does he do that? Well, in the book of Acts, it shows us that he rules by converting them. He shows great mercy to his enemies. For instance, Saul of Tarsus, Acts chapter 9. He encounters the one who has all authority, and how does Jesus show his authority? He shows his authority not by condemning Saul of Tarsus, though he could have. He showed him mercy by converting him. And as the book of Acts unfolds, we see this ascended, risen, glorified king ruling over the world and coming particularly after his enemies, and conquering them. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 20, uh, 15, 26 says that the last enemy that he will abolish is death. This is that tension, that, moment, that time we live in. We, we affirm Jesus is king. We affirm he's ascended. We affirm that he's Lord of lords, king of kings. And yet there's this tension that we must embrace, and we experience it here as a church regularly. Why does this happen? How do I understand this hardship? Why is this evil allowed to manifest itself? We live in this moment of the already Jesus has conquered and the not yet do we see the full conquering of our king. 1 Peter 3.22 describes Christ who is at the right hand of God having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Now, how does this relate to your life? That's a lot of language, a lot of Sunday morning church talk. That's a lot of scripture that's true. But for us, when we encounter something that's difficult for us or a person who's difficult for us or a circumstance that we would not normally like or want, here is the rub. We want to assert our authority over that circumstance to get rid of it. But do we think in this moment I have a king? 
in this moment, I have a Savior. In this moment, I have someone I can rely on. Right now, perhaps you see yourself heading into an argument with someone. It's good to argue things. There's a good sense of arguing. There's also a bad sense of arguing. And let's go with that negative side in which there's bitterness being expressed or a desire to be bitter. Hold on just a minute. Where's this coming from? Why is this so important to you? Why must this be the way it is? Think of how radically dysfunctional the Roman world was. Think of how filled with problems and difficulties and difficult people and hard people and impossible situations. When we start reading, about the, reading what happens in the book of Acts, it's like it's craziness. The, the things that are possible, the things that are, people are believing or chasing after, and that you have the apostles going right in the middle of all this and bringing the grace of the kingdom. Why do they do that? And how do they do it? They've got a risen king who conquered death. And they are vitally connected to the reality of his seated above. It, he's really reigning. It's really true. Or as Francis Schaeffer used to say, it's true truth. So in your argument, in that moment when you want to express your will and really hammer someone and really get them, stop and ask this question. Do you have a Savior who is reigning as king right now? Or are you supposed to put that crown on? Think about that. As simple as that idea is, when you want your will done so badly that you're willing to sin in order to do it, Another God replacement has come into your heart. G.I. Packer goes on to talk about Christ's spiritual omnipresence. This means that we in the, the, the Christian faith have no holy places where we believe we'll find God. This means that Jesus is present with his church wherever the church assembles. See? He's with his people. It doesn't mean we can't have a sanctuary. But he is spiritually omnipresent. Hebrews 9.24 and Hebrews 12.22, important passages describe Jesus as our high priest and the one we can go to who is sympathetic with our needs He is spiritually present, and he's not limited by time and space. So Jesus has personally ascended and has been given all authority. Secondly, he is spiritually present or spiritually omnipresent. And then thirdly, he has a heavenly ministry. What is Jesus doing now? What is Jesus doing now? You know that famous passage in Romans 8 that says, what will separate us from the love of Christ? Remember that? That's Romans 8, 35. What will separate us from the love of Christ? Such a beautiful series of rhetorical questions. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? You're familiar with that passage? Beautiful passage. Do you know what goes right before that passage? It's a passage about the ministry of Jesus right now. 
In Romans 8.34, we read this. Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And then you have what will separate us from the love of God. What is Jesus doing right now? Jesus is interceding in prayer on your behalf and doing this perfectly. Understanding things about your struggle that are deeper than you can comprehend and this is being communicated to the Father and the will of God is being orchestrated for your good, masterfully overseen by Jesus Christ himself. What will separate us, Paul says, because we have Jesus who is interceding for us. And he is interceding in such a way that we will never be lost. We will never be in a circumstance that is separating us from the love of God. We should never interpret that circumstance as a sign we've been separated from the love of God, though we are tempted to feel that. And so Jesus is in his throne, on his throne interceding with our interests. He pleads for us by his presence on the, to the Father. Someone once said that the, our Lord's life in heaven is his prayer. So, let's go back to square one, then I'll wrap this up. What narrative, what story is gripping your life? When you hear of the ascended Jesus taken up into glory, what should come to mind for us is this. That this Jesus is after my deepest joy. He's pursuing my deepest joy. He wants me to enter into a deep abiding peace. Now for the disciples what he does is he rises from the dead and then begins to explain how everything is different now. It wasn't just a magic trick. It's a whole new way of thinking and living and being. And they catch it and they understand it. My exhortation to you and my need before you is that I would understand more deeply what it means that Jesus has conquered all my enemies. And he calls me now to do mission, not individually, but corporately. Obviously, individual encounters with people are very important, but we as the people of God are witnessing to this story every time we gather. We're communicating that the living Christ is not someone who was some philosopher lost in history, but he is present among us with his resurrection 
abiding, personal, intimate power among his people. May we turn away from the predominant story of our age or our day, and that is, it is just a self in, in, in pursuit of individual happiness through the right choices. May we be shaped by God's action in the world that these shape our priorities and our goals. We are affirming every time we get together that the ascended Jesus is present with us. Every time we eat the Lord's Supper, we are affirming that Jesus Christ is present and connected to us personally and corporately. Let's begin this adventure. Let's begin this relearning of the story. And let's, uh, let's enter into it with joy. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, we live in a world where spirituality is, is set loose, where 